0: From the author of the book by the same name, it's The Best Saturdays of Our Lives Podcast with Mark McRae.
1: On this episode of The Best Saturdays of Our Lives Podcast, Dan and I continue our discussion of the sword and sorcery genre.
0: I have the power! <laughs> yes, you do. Oh, thanks. Thanks. Thanks, oh dude. my Appreciate gosh. It. What a great Appreciate series. It. Oh God. Yeah.
1: Right. I have the power. Right. He-Man and the Masters of the Universe, which was a groundbreaking series. It was the first time that you had first run action adventure in syndicated television. Now. Prior to that, there was a lot of first run syndication all over the place, but they were mainly comedy series. Right. Uh, something like Inspector Gadget or an import sort of like Battle of the Planets. Right. But this was the first time that someone had developed action adventure syndicated five days a week, first run. So He-Man was very groundbreaking in, in that respect. And when you are dealing with syndicated television, your budgets increase. Exponentially versus Saturday morning. And one of the things that Lou Scheimer, who ran Filmation Productions, always talked about was that He-Man rescued him from the Saturday morning budgets, as well as the network's interference in general. Right. And all of, of the network's uh, standards and practices concerns. With syndication, you have complete creative control. It's sold the independent stations and it's one of those deals. <laughs> You take it or you don't, <laughs> but you're going to take it if you want it, it's going to be in its original animated form, the way that right. we want.
0: Right. Freedom. Freedom as an artist, freedom as a producer to explore mm-hmm. the stories and ideas that they that they want to explore and, and having the budget to make that happen, breaking free from from the network right. model
1: right and he-man's backstory is kind of interesting yeah it is uh, a lot of the background was explored on the uh, netflix series the toys that made us right their frustration with not doing star wars mattel it,
0: turning down george lucas's uh, offer to have mattel produce a line of star wars toys
1: right what also added insult to injury was that kenner ended up picking up the Star Wars toys, and a gentleman who was running Kenner was an (laughs) ex-Mattel employee. And so that just added a little extra salt to the wound. Mattel decided to create something from scratch that's not based on an existing movie or television franchise. Right. They didn't have much success with the Battlestar Galactica, Clash of the Titans, and Flash Gordon action figures. It's kind of interesting because when I was a kid, I don't remember the Galactica or Clash of the Titans action figures. I do recall seeing Flash Gordon in the stores, but the other two properties, I don't remember at all.
0: Oh, you know, it's funny. We were talking about this. I have no memory of Flash Gordon toys, mm-hmm. but I, I certainly remember Clash of the Titan and Battlestar Galactica toys. But maybe what I didn't say was I knew of those toys because, you know, you'd go over to a friend's house and start digging through their pile of toys in a box in the closet or whatever. And all of the Battlestar Galactica toys or Clash of the Titans toys I saw were always scratched, broken in pieces and had already been forgotten about, but not yet. Thrown away by their parents,
1: right? So right.
0: the history saying that Mattel didn't uh, see a whole lot of success with those lines, I can uh, I can vouch for that, right? <laughs> they, they weren't that great.
1: the The cool part, though, that I found out later was that the Flash Gordon toys were actually the designs of the characters uh, for the movie were also shared with the animated series that came along a little bit later, so that there was some consistency where you had the Flash Gordon movie that was done by Dino De Laurentiis match the costumes of the animated series done by Filmation Productions. So I thought that part was pretty cool. You know, maybe because where we were living at the time, you know, me growing up on in the Northeast and you growing up on the West Coast and, you know, there wasn't a Walmart or Target. I mean, there were department stores, but... Depending on which department stores you went to, they also picked and chose what toys ended up in their stores. And if you, if your parents didn't go to a particular uh, department store, you probably missed out.
0: <laughs> exactly, individual retailers and uh, been very focused markets as mm-hmm. well. Uh, uh, a lot of the times, right? There'll be a, a later episode. Uh, good, good listeners out there, where we dive as deep as one can into the relationship between animation and and merchandising. Sticking with the, the animation end this time, let's get into He-Man. It was conceptualized as a toy at first. That's where it began.
1: Correct. You had all of these people working on the design of this toy, and <laughs> you have several people, like more than several, at least four or five or six people that say... That they are the ones responsible for the creation of the right, toy. And right. it's, it's it's fair to say that they all contributed something. But one of the integral parts of that toy design was Mattel designer named Mark Taylor, whose style was similar to uh, Frank uh, Fazetta. And, you know, Frank Fazetta is known to do sword and sorcery Conan type of artwork. That's a, a huge influence right there. On the fly, they came up with an idea to include comic books with each action figure.
0: Right, and, to, to help <laughs> to help to help the buyer to help the child uh, understand who is this, why this guy uh, with his muscles and his sword, what's his story, what's his deal, to help everybody know who the hell he man is.
1: Right, exactly, because you know, typically, if Mattel was dealing with. Star Wars or even Battlestar Galactica, there's already an existing story.
0: You already know.
1: And so a backstory gets created. You have awesome comic books being sold with the toys. And then they roll over to Toys R Us, who basically say, well, having a comic book <laughs> isn't going to work because kids at five years old can't read.
0: Oh. <laughs>
1: You have to give it to the executives at Mattel because during the pitch meeting they said, "Oh, didn't we mention we're going to do like a, a, a two special animated?" <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> we're also we're also going to do a cartoon. Yeah, we're doing a cartoon, and it's in the works. Right, and so
1: uh, one of the executives, you know, he had checked Black Star out and loved it, and he says, "Well, Filmation's our guys; they're the ones that can actually do this." And so they set up a meeting with Lou Scheimer and Lou was the one that convinced them that for the amount of money that you're willing to pay for the two specials, why don't you just go into first run syndication? Right. (laughs) I I think it's kind of funny. Now, what the documentary doesn't mention is that, you know, Lou came up with this suggestion to go into first run syndication. He was probably already thinking about this as right. a business strategy. <laughs> right. You know, he had it up to his eyeballs with dealing with the networks and trying to sell shows. And at this point, by 1982, Filmation is still the only studio that is doing animation in-house. Everyone in the industry is sending things overseas to get more bang for their buck. So it's getting a little harder and harder to keep doing animation in the U.S. So Lou was probably thinking, wow, if we can sell He-Man to syndication... I can increase my animation budget and I'll be free of the networks.
0: So it, so. All, it all worked out. It was like, okay, so Lou was Lou fed up with the networks, mm-hmm. uh, has an idea to go to syndication. Mattel shows up with uh, a whole lot of cash. And Lou is like, uh, you know, he says to them, you know, why don't we try a first run? Let's try to do a season. In the back of his mind, he's like, oh, thank God. Yes, yes, yes. You know, the an- I had the a. Answer I, to all my prayers.
1: <laughs> you know, uh, Lou Scheimer is someone I've known since 1989. And, uh, he was a friend and a mentor. And, you know, I, I would just call him up at home sometimes, just ask him questions. And if I had known about this background regarding the toys, I definitely, this would have been a great question to ask him. So, right. uh, did you have like your own business angle? Yeah, right. You know? <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, uh, unfortunately, he passed away, and um, yeah. we'll, we'll never know. But, right. uh, but I think it was smart on on his side, though. Like, hey, this is perfect for me.
0: It was a win win, right? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, for everyone. For Everybody everyone. won. For, yeah, and of course, you know, He Man became this tremendous, huge hit in syndication. It just demolished the competition. Oh, yeah. It was beautiful, and they they brought in a bodybuilder to do more rotoscoping. It was a really beautiful cartoon series and grew a huge fan base, and it gave a huge bump to the toy sales.
0: Oh, gosh. Uh, yeah, the toy sales, they were moving 50, then 60, then 70 million units annually. Right. Uh, in part based on the success of the cartoon, and then vice versa. Mm-hmm. You know, you go to the toy store, you see this He-Man, what's that all about? Well, hey, after school, 4 p.m., your your local uh, syndicated station, turn it on. There it is. He-Man right. was huge. Uh, He-Man is really kind of represents the apex of the sword and sorcery genre. Uh,
1: agreed. And that's one of the things I used to joke with Lou about as well, was that my family and I visited him, I believe, in 2008, and we had dinner at his house. He showed us around, and... You know, it's the type of house you would expect someone at his level working in television to have, you know, sure. beautiful. But I kept joking with him. I'm like, "So, so tell me, did he man help build this house?" You know, and he would just laugh because he had the house prior to he man, but I'm sure it um helped with overall investments. Right. Right. And, you know, the other awesome thing about He-Man is that it opened the door to all the other studios to produce first-run action. It became a real genre, and that opened up the door for G.I. Joe, Thundercats, and oh, Transformers. Sure. Right. He-Man was the catalyst helping to make all those other great iconic series happen.
0: It proved the concept. Right, right. Not only marrying the idea between original concept and, and merchandise— but also, like you just said, the idea of syndicated action, relatively high budget uh, after school market.
1: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So all of those things, it was a big, big game changer in the industry. You know, also in 1983, you had the Dungeons and Dragons series
0: Dungeons on premiere. Dungeons and Dragons. Now, that was a network show. Right, and as everybody out there knows, if you don't know, go ahead and pause us. Get on the internet, type in Dungeons and Dragons role play. Maybe twenty sided dice, you know, graph paper. Uh, role playing <laughs> was 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 huge back then. Dungeons and Dragons mm-hmm. was a property, uh, really, just begging to be capitalized on. As
1: you mentioned, you know, it was a role-playing game that uh, showed up around 1974. And again, CBS still trying to, you know, work a successful sword and sorcery series. You had Black Star show up around 1981. There were no renewal of episodes for season two, but it still stayed on the air. So in CBS's quest, <laughs> excuse the pun, <laughs> sword and sorcery, <laughs> They wanted something that already had a pretty good fan base, which was a smart move on their part, and they adapted this series, and it was a co-production between Marvel and a company named TSR. Oh, oh Uh, yeah. And and TSR owned the rights
0: to the the role-playing game. Gary Gynix, TSR, oh yeah. What's the story behind that? Dungeons and
1: Dragons was this really cool show that uh, featured the characters that were based on the Dungeons and Dragons game. They go to an amusement park just to have some fun. They all end up on a roller coaster and somehow get transported into the Dungeons and Dragon realm. And there they meet the Dungeon Master. He gives them all of their weapons and they have to go through missions or have a quest. They also try to figure out how to get home. The thing that always cracked me up about that open was what would have happened if there had been other kids on that roller coaster? Would they have been stuck in the Dungeons and Dragons world as well? Yeah. <laughs> and maybe I'm looking at it too deeply, of course, because it is a kids' show.
0: What I found lacking in, in the show retrospectively, they go into this ride and then they are transported to the world of Dungeons and Dragons. And I always thought. Wouldn't it be more, at least on brand, if they were sitting there, you know, rolling their, their eight-sided dice and moving miniatures around, you know, eating Cheetos and pounding Mountain Dew all night right, with their character sheets?
1: Well, you know, probably because, you know, all the parents were sort of criticizing Dungeons and and Dragons at
0: the time. That's, yeah, no, your Dungeons and Dragons was a hot, hot button issue back in those days. I mean, Dungeons and Dragons could lead to heavy metal and heavy metal could lead to Satanism. Or maybe it was the other way around. (laughs) Right. The religious Reagan 80s weren't having any of that D&D chunk. You know what? That's a great point, Mark. They use the aesthetics of the game. Yes. They use the terminology of the game, but they really pull away from the actual mechanics of the game. Right. The idea of the game. And
1: so they probably didn't want the same backlash on the animated series. In fact, uh, one of the writers, Marky Vanier, mentions on Wikipedia that they were forced to write stories where the kids, you know, the cast, have to learn some type of educational lesson. Marky Vanier also was one of the writers on uh, Thundar, too.
0: Oh, interesting. Yeah.
1: So that was also part of the deal with the show being on the network. There had to be some type of positive message. And one of the characters, Eric, who was... So not on board with missions and going on a quest, and you know, always questioning the characters about why are we doing right. this. You know, I feel like a lot of the episodes were meant for Eric to learn a lesson every week. Sure,
0: okay. You
1: know, from a network perspective, it was probably a smart move not to even talk about the D and D game
0: at all. Well, I mean, you know, it's it's but you. It's a lot easier to go out and burn the Dungeons and Dragons books than it is to go out and burn your television, you know. So, yeah, it, it all it all makes sense now, right?
1: And you also have to think about it that the Watchdog groups were were still pretty powerful back in the eighties, and they were still oh, huge, yeah, dictating to the networks what they like and what they didn't. And I'm so happy that they're not around anymore because I just feel like some of those. Watchdog groups stuck their noses in places that <laughs> they had no business. They
0: had no business. Right. right. Now, everybody, look out for our next podcast. It's going to be uh, the best hip-hop of our lives. <laughs> Parental advisory.
1: <laughs>
0: oh, yeah. Coming to a, a podcast episode soon. That's right. Th- this show is hitting on a lot of cylinders. Uh, first, of, of all of the sword and sorcery, shows in my mind Dungeons and Dragons had the best character dynamics between the main characters and not only that but it mirrored the class types of the of, of Dungeons and oh, Dragons absolutely this show did a great job balancing and bringing together those group dynamic concepts in both uh, everybody's uh, literal function but also personality type.
1: And for me that's what I really loved about the show like the interaction between the characters Were it was just very realistic it reminded me of of the relationships that I have with my friends growing up in the neighborhood
0: it was almost like uh it was almost like the friends of saturday morning cartoon <laughs> you know <laughs> <laughs> exactly yeah. i think uh, exactly. i think i think eric would be uh i don't know david schwimmer whatever whatever his character's name was i wonder who would be uh <laughs> it would be Phoebe. Anyway, anyway. Maybe maybe Uni would be Phoebe. Yeah, maybe.
1: Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah. So, uh, and then, of course, the villain, Venger, who was an awesome villain. Very scary villain that had magical powers. You know, he wanted the weapons that the Dragon Master gave the kids so he can use them for his own means, which was probably going to be evil. Oh, yeah. And he just resented the kids as well. And then, you know, you find out later that Venger is the son of the Dragon Master.
0: Yeah. So he's not only jealous of their powers, their devices, he's pissed because his dad likes these kids more than him. <laughs> I
1: know. It's... uh well, you know, Vendor, if you weren't so freaking evil. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so, so that's the situation. And you know, earlier we were talking about how back in the day, a lot of these shows were not allowed to tidy up or finish. Right. There were actually plans to get Dungeons and Dragons finished up if a fourth season had been ordered by the network. Which I thought was really progressive, um, at the time.
0: Oh yeah.
1: Maybe Marvel decided, let's wrap this thing up in four seasons, which is something that you see happen a lot in television and streaming today where the showrunners have a plan. We only want to do three seasons or we only want to do two seasons. And you know, maybe back in the day, maybe back in the 1980s, people actually were thinking that way. So maybe it was a plan. You know what? Let's wrap it up and give the viewers a wonderful conclusion to the series. It's really too bad that it didn't happen because this was a a really a really good show that was executed wonderfully as far as like network television goes. It did really great ratings. Did you ever wonder why there are 24-hour kid networks? In my book, The Best Saturdays of Our Lives, I write about how Saturday morning became a competitive business and the proving ground for what would become the 24-hour kid network. My book covers the big bang of the 1960s explosion of high ratings to the early digital age of Saturday mornings, last hurrah, the 1990s. You can purchase my book by going to thebestsaturdaysofourlives.com and I will ship you a signed copy. Hey, everybody, this is Mark McRae, and I'm here with Dan Clink, mm-hmm. and we had a super awesome day at Retro
0: Toy Con. Retro Toy Con, hosted by Toy Federation, a cool shop running a cool con here in Greenville, South Carolina. Yeah, a lot, a lot of awesome toys, a lot of great costumes, a lot of cool panels. Uh, the one that stands out for me is uh, the one hosted, uh, well, hosted by you, Mark.
1: Oh yeah, I, I did do that panel. Yeah. In fact, I kicked off the convention
0: you, with the first panel. Opening pitch, and sat- the end of the only Saturday morning panel. Right. Of the entire On convention. Saturday morning.
1: Damn, <laughs> that's right. How, how perfect appropriate. Is that? How
0: appropriate. Yeah, right. And
1: so the name of the panel was How Filmations History of Super Successful Partnerships with Archie Comics, with DC Comics, 20th Century Fox, Paramount, Sherwood Schwartz, Gene Roddenberry, King's Features, Edgar Rice Burroughs, and how all of those successes led to the company working with Mattel and the creation of He-Man and the Masters of the Universe.
0: So being that this is Sword and Sorcery Part 2, and being that Part 2 is pretty He-Man-centric... Uh, this is this is a neat little addendum we're doing Instead of the newsletter today If you could, without giving too much away uh, Draw that line mm-hmm. Between the Archies And He-Man mm-hmm. Go Alright their first relationship was was with DC
1: Comics. So we gotta talk about the new adventures of Superman. And then Archie, of course. Oh
0: damn. Oh, you're you're like one-upping me. You're like you're like, I'll take your the Archies and I will raise you Superman. All right. Hey, the ball's so, it, balls in your court, man. So Superman,
1: here is the awesome thing about Filmation's new adventures of Superman. It was a true game changer in the industry. Superman surprised everyone. It brought in the biggest ratings than anyone had seen on Saturday morning before Ascent. And it was a big shocker. It enabled CBS's Saturday morning schedule to become, to go from third place to first place. I talk about this a lot in my book, The Best Saturdays of Our Lives. And Superman created what everyone in the TV industry wants, the halo effect, where people not only stuck around for Superman, mm. they watched right. the entire schedule. Right. And that's, what, that's how CBS was able to go from number three to number one, upsetting the ABC network, which was previously the number one network. And ABC had the Beatles on their network, and uh, Superman <laughs> sent the Beatles packing. Right, right, right. Uh, man. So, he said succinct, right? A, I mean, I mean, I mean, I mean, He-Man? I of, I kind of got stuck on Superman and just, hey, you know, you know. <laughs> but anyway, so that relationship with DC Comics led to Filmation working with Archie Comics and Archie right. Comics ratings blew away Superman's ratings. Right. The studio became definitely much more successful. That was followed by Shazam. Mm mm-hmm. The Brady Kids. Shazam! the live action. Right. Brady Kids the cartoon. The cartoon. Right. All these successful relationships and and all these shows won their time slots. They were all number one. So not only was Filmation reaching out to all these studios and creating great business relationships, they were creating number one shows at the same time. Right. they gained a reputation for being a very successful animation company. Right. And that led to them doing Tarzan. Okay. Which, oh, we're uh, almost there.
0: We're almost there. So right. Ta- right. We're
1: almost there. Yep. So Tarzan, <laughs> the studio changed their entire house style, and Tarzan was rotoscoped. Right. The series was like the best-looking animated series from the 1976, yep, yep, 1977 yep. season. Right. Tarzan because they changed the house style by having the character as a rotoscope character and looking right. super athletic, right. that totally ties in with He-Man's yes. look. Yes.
0: Yes. <laughs> yes.
1: All right. And so because formation stepped up and changed that house style, it benefited He-Man. The directors and the talent that they brought in to the series uh, was second to none and the animation directors really tried to push the envelope animation wise right. to bring the best He-Man series ever. And one of the premier directors was a lady named Gwen Wetzler, who was a former Disney in-betweener animator. Mm. And to me, she was a Filmation's best director. And had a really great reputation for directing really good cartoons and always getting more bang out of the animation budget that was supplied. The presentation not only showed what she did (laughs) as a director.
0: You gave examples. You gave some really, really cool examples.
1: Right. And so there's an episode called The Search for VHO. And I'm not going to go into what VHO stands for. Look it up on the internet. (laughs) But... Ah, uh, there's a really great episode that Gwen Wetzler directed where He-Man is fighting the Kraken, and it's directed right. so beautifully. He-Man falls.
0: He, he falls, falls and it's like an
1: epic fall. He,
0: he's not just like, hey, I'm the jock boss of this whole whatever. No, he falls. He falls, falls. Right. Yeah. Like it hurts. I jerked in my seat. Yeah, I was like, "Whoa, damn!" Yeah, no, yeah. you 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 pulled that you pulled that out a lot on uh, most people in that room. Yeah, they weren't they expecting me. Were like, ooh,
1: they didn't expect to yeah. fall like that, and so yeah. you know, so I showed that little clip, and people were they were shocked but <laughs> pleasantly surprised of how yeah, that's real. the shot was animated, right. I also showed uh, one of my favorites, The Problem with Power, which is a fan-favorite He-Man episode.
0: I return the power. Right. I return the power.
1: It's one of the episodes where you actually see He-Man returning back to Adam.
0: The lighting on his face, the angle they got on him as he stands on the tower uh, (laughs) uh, over the precipice. Right. It looked like when a television animation legitimately goes... Uh, to the big screen, throwing the sword down. And I was pointing out the inner, you know, the he man, when they would go from one segment to another, the sword comes flying at you. The the foreground cell animation appears to be that same he man. But the background is the as the the abyss, the precipice. Right. And how he throws the sword and the first segment of the sword falling. I mean, again, the foreground cell would be the sword, but it's falling. It's not coming at you in terms of like, we're going to the next scene, everybody. Mm -hmm. No. He-Man just threw it off. It's almost like he's connecting with that little interstitial stitching of the show. And then you see it played in reverse going down into the abyss. Right. And how one could say that's them recycling animation. And I say that was honest to God. I think that was an artistic choice.
1: Oh, definitely was.
0: Because they didn't do a He-Man to go to the next scene, would they? No. Because that wouldn't have made sense within that one episode. It would not make sense. Right. It would so not instead, make So instead that was they were operating on a level that I was not aware of.
1: Yeah, it's um I feel like if He Man wasn't a kid's show that was syndicated, you know, because I guess one of the things that um back in the nineteen eighties when you know Filmation created first run action adventure with He Man and the Masters of the Universe, while those shows did great ratings and you know, made a lot of money for the independent, you know, stations that ran the show. Part of the issue was you had these artists and directors that were doing great work and they didn't necessarily get recognized. And the problem with power to me should have been nominated for an Emmy. It is that good. And that scene where He-Man is throwing in the towel, giving up his powers, it is beautifully shot. It's beautifully animated. And it just really shows the artistry of the people who are working at that studio. Uh,
0: what are the two episodes, those two specifically? Uh,
1: the, um, uh, the Search for VHO and the okay. other one was called The Problem with Power.
0: Retro Toy-Con, everybody. Greenville 2020. Look it up on the internet. I think, I think I'm think i all in for next year.
1: Yeah, yeah, me too. Yeah. I mean, it was, like I said, uh, it was fun being able to, you know, kick off the convention with the first panel. Um, what's really wonderful about giving a panel is that you have people talk to you later after the panel right. that will give you a perspective that you probably didn't even think about. I guess there's a way of saying that I also get educated
0: when I give a panel. Those moments when you hit a fan, right? you know, you don't need to swap cards. It's just that pure, whew, what you were saying, and I got more to say. And you were like, oh, I love it. Yeah. You know, being able to do it. <laughs> it was, it was a
1: nice surprise. And to be yeah. able to have the time to talk to somebody a little bit more beyond the panel was really good, that you made that type of connection with someone. And the two of you can just sit down and just continue talking. That was like a really, really great experience. It just kind of reinforces how much people enjoyed the panel. and also makes me feel like I am connecting with people who understand and feel the same way that I do, that these are great
0: cartoons where comedy and commentary collide thunder talk brings a unique variety show style twist to the fandom podcast genre we drop music from some of today's hottest up-and-coming artists we discuss topics social and political relevance and deliver our sideways take on the world at large if stand-up comedy npr the millennium falcon and classic mtv had a baby it would be Thunder Talk. Thunder Talk is part of the ESO Network. Find us at thundertalk.org and on all podcasting platforms.
1: On the next Best Saturdays of Our Lives podcast, Dan and I will be discussing one of the most underrated sword and sorcery series of all time, Shira the Princess of Power.
0: You know, when I was a kid, I I totally crushed on on Adora. She had like that Princess Leia kind of vibe, you know. Uh, you, uh, oh yeah, she, she's a tactician, she's a general, she's a warrior, you know, powerful. I I, I really found that really like I wanted to grow up and, and marry Adora, but but I always felt that like Shira would be all like, no girl, he's trash. You don't you can you can do better. <laughs> you can do better. I mean, if you're not even gonna give Bo a chance. This dance grub? mm-mm, nope.
1: Right, well, it's kind of interesting that you bring up Bo, because in the series, She-Ra had two different love interests. She had Bo, who really loved and adored She-Ra, but as Adora, she had a recurring character named, oh gosh, the Hawk? (laughs) Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He was based on an Errol Flynn character. Sure, uh, sure. The Seahawk, I think, is his name.
0: Yeah, you know, I would say, you know, Bo and Hawkman need to you know, <laughs> get on the same page with all that. It's it's a Roman's world, a Shearer's world. And we will also be discussing um,
1: a sort of lost, forgotten Sword and Sorcery syndicated series, uh, goldtar and the Golden Lance. You know
0: why I can't wait for um, that, Mark? Why? Because I have no clue what the hell goldtar and the Golden Lance is. <laughs> So, hey, just like you, just like you good listeners, uh, I, I I wait. I wait with bated breath.
1: Yeah, it's it's going to be a good one. Like Goldtar, in my opinion, was like, uh, you know, not to give much away about the episode, but it was sort of the last hurrah for the whole sword and sorcery genre.
0: Well, it's also going to be the last hurrah for our three part series on sword and sorcery. So, boom. Don't miss it, kids. Don't miss it.
1: The Best Saturdays of Our Lives podcast is a co-production of the Best Saturdays of Our Lives studios and the Weirdos Workshop. To get a personalized signed copy of the Best Saturdays of Our Lives book, go to thebestsaturdaysofourlives.com. This is Mark McRae signing off.